Well, hello, friends. Uh, my name is Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. And some people, as they look back over this last year, are calling 2020, and now, frankly, the first part of 2021, the worst year ever. And we have to be honest, the hardships that many are experiencing and certainly the stress that is in our lives and in our culture is palpable and is mounting in some ways. And so here at Jericho, we wanted to explore that together. And we're gonna explore a book of the Old Testament that is dealing with hardships and suffering and this dynamic interplay between divine and personal responsibility. So we're looking at the life of a man named Job during our teaching times. And Job lived a very, very long time ago. And there's a book in the Bible tucked away just uh, before the Psalms that bears his name. So a quick refresher course of what we covered last weekend. Job's part of the wisdom literature tradition, meaning that it's intended to give us guidance for life and to answer some of our big picture questions, although it doesn't do it in the neat and tidy ways that sometimes we want it to. And the rest of the book of Job delves into the very normal question that you and I and probably most anyone would ask if something bad happened to us. And that is the question of why? Why did this happen to me? Was it something I did wrong? Was God somehow involved in this? Maybe God is punishing me in some way for something that I did. And that's the question that the book of Job is wrestling with. So the writer of Job is going to spend the next 40 chapters probing the big question that we're still asking today. And that is, what is the link between prosperity and piety? Asked another way, if I'm good, doesn't God owe me goodness? Or asked in the negative, well, if I'm experiencing bad things, doesn't that mean that somehow I am bad or that I've done something bad? And the book seeks to answer this question by setting up a series of poetic conversations between Job and his three friends that we're going to meet today. So last week we learned that after being present, presented as the most righteous and wealthiest dude in the ancient Near East, Job's life has taken a very bad turn. He had his own uh, very personal worst year ever. After having lived a hashtag blessed life, Job has now experienced catastrophic financial loss. His seven sons and his three daughters have died in a horrific accident. And now his personal health has deteriorated. He's really at his lowest point and he needs help and support. He needs friends. He needs his community. And so surely we think they will help poor Job. So let's pick the narrative up at Job chapter 2, and we'll start reading in verse 11. When three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy that he had suffered, they got together and traveled from their homes to comfort and console him. Their names were Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite. And when they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him, wailing loudly. They tore their robes. They threw dust in the air over their heads to show their grief. And they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. And no one said a word to Job, for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. 
Now, this is where our Jewish friends get the practice known as sitting Shiva. Shiva means seven in Hebrew. And so Job's friend sat with him in his loss for seven whole days of mourning. And they're joining together with him in this ancient ritual of grief and loss. They're throwing dust over their heads. They're ripping their clothing. I mean, this is how in the ancient world you showed high commitment grief and mourning and also high commitment friendship bonds to another person who is experiencing loss. So before we rush to criticize Job's friends, and trust me, there is lots to criticize, I want us to pause for a moment and look at two things that they actually got right in this moment, things that you and I can take and apply into our friendship situations. First, they show up and they sit with Job for a whole week. I mean, we don't know what their schedules were, what occupations they had, how far they traveled, but this is high commitment to drop whatever you're doing, travel probably a long distance, sit with a friend in a time of need, not for an hour, not for an overnight, but for a whole week. Job's dealing with the loss of his 10 kids. And if you place yourself into the story and sit alongside of him, I wonder what you and I would have done. What would I have said? And that's kind of the challenge, isn't it? We want to say something to people in grief. But Job's friends understand that at least in this moment, when someone is going through a hard times, sometimes it actually isn't what you say that makes the difference. It's just showing up and sitting Shiva with someone, being present with them in their grief. The scripture talks about this when it invites us to mourn with those who mourn. See friends, the ministry of presence is often forgotten or overlooked in the modern world. Sometimes you resort to well-intentioned emojis or even kind words, oh friend, I'm praying for you. But I wanna remind us that those are insufficient in places of deep pain. Facebook or Instagram or whatever platform you're on, as connective as it can be, is not a sufficient space to show up in when a friend is in deep pain and anguish. You need to actually get there, to be there in person, to sit, to listen, to cry with them. And this requires putting aside your own agenda or calendar or even might you, what you might want to say in that moment. I can remember when our daughter Sophie was an infant and she was suddenly hospitalized for a respiratory virus. And so we were spending New Year's Eve and in fact a few days in Emerge. And I can remember a number of people coming up, but one person I remember in particular was Pastor Wally. He came up, and, and to this day, I actually don't remember what he said. I just remember that he came and that he sat with us. He was the presence of Christ to us in that time of chaos and anxiety. 
because he was willing to come and be present. And so friends, I wanna challenge us to be people who practice the ministry of presence in the lives of others because it is such a rare gift in our world today. So that's the first gift that Job's friends gave him. They came, they sat. And the second one is closely related to that and that is at first they listen without trying to fix. In his book, Being There, author Dave Furman notes that, quote, there's a kind of ministry that is without words. Often we think that to truly minister to someone, we have to swoop in and fix the issue. But what if, instead of offering our lessons, our insights, our theology, and our reasonings, we simply offered our ears. Sometimes, friends, the best thing that you can do is show up and shut up. Because here's one of the facts of friendship that I have learned the hard way. And that is you're going to find out who your friends are when you're at your most vulnerable, not when you are at your most victorious. See, in my own life, when my character has been under attack, when my family's been under fire, when my integrity's been questioned, it's actually in those moments when I have learned who my friends are. It's not the moments when you're riding the waves of success. It's those times when you're at your most vulnerable. Whose couch are you gonna pour out your soul on? Those are the ones who are gonna carry you when you break down. And I am so grateful to God that God's given Meg and I these kinds of friends here at Jericho. And so it's worth asking yourself the question, what would it take for me to be that kind of friend to another person? Because it might take some rearrangement in your life and in your calendar. So let's keep moving. After this amazing display of friendship, they're sitting Shiva for seven days. Job begins to speak at the start of chapter three. And I'm gonna give you an overview of the next dozen chapters in beast mode. So stick with me here, because we're gonna power through quickly, but at a very high level. So after the week of mourning, Job's suffering leads him to the place that in chapter three, he begins to just say, you know what? I wish I had never been born. Job feels in chapter three, verse 23, that God has just surrounded him in every side with difficulties, and Job continues to assert his innocence and that his suffering is not an expression of divine judgment. And the narrator reinforces for us and has told us already that Job is actually innocent, and now Job affirms this as well. What have I done that I'm in this state, Job asks. God and his friends. Not unfairly, by the way. Job wants to know if God has had something to do with this, but Job also wants his friends to know that he's confident this has not happened to him because he has sinned. So remember, the core question of the book of Job here is this, is this linkage between goodness or piety and blessing. Job was experiencing incredible goodness and now he's experiencing incredible suffering. And the question that the book invites us to wrestle with is why? Why would this happen? 
And Job doesn't have a good answer. In chapter 3, verse 26, he says, I have no peace, I have no quietness, I have no rest, only trouble comes. And now actually begin a series of speeches which form the majority of the book. Job's three friends are going to line up to give him words of comfort. Except we're going to see that they're actually pretty miserable comforters. For two chapters, chapter 4 and chapter 5, Eliphaz, likely the oldest, begins to hold court. So let me give you the basic contours of his argument. Look at Job chapter 3, uh, sorry, chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. He makes a statement in the form of a life question. He says, hey Job, uh, I want to invite you to stop and think. Do the innocent die? Yeah, his answer obviously is no. Then when have the upright been destroyed? His thinking is never. My experience shows that those who plant trouble and cultivate evil will harvest the same. And he says, in essence, listen, Joe, buddy, I know you don't think you've done anything wrong, but let's just talk about this for a moment. How else do you explain you going from the top of the heap to the bottom? Job chapter 5, verse 3, he says, hey, I have seen fools can be successful for the moment, but then comes sudden disaster. We might summarize his line of thinking as follows. Listen, this is just how Job, God runs the universe, Job. The righteous are blessed, the wicked are punished. And so his logic, if you keep going with that, is Job, your suffering must stem from some sin that you committed. I mean, he says, no one's innocent before God, am I right? So God must be punishing you for something. Look at what he counsels Job in chapter 5, verse 17. Do not despise the Almighty when you sin, the discipline of the Almighty when you sin, Job. For though he wounds, he also bandages. He strikes, but his hands also heal. From six disasters, he'll rescue you. Even in the seventh, he'll keep you from evil. Then he summarizes from all of the friends. We have studied life, and we have found this to be true. Listen to my counsel and apply it to yourself. So let's pause for a moment and think not theoretically or theologically about this conversation, but let's think about it personally for a moment. It can be very easy for us to judge Job's friends for being theologically sloppy or speaking from their personal experience, but at the same time, I think we can slide into this kind of thinking. We can look at a person with a chronic illness and wonder in our heads, hmm, I wonder if they had a bit more faith. Maybe they could pray to be healed. Or we can look at other countries and easily cast judgment. I mean, I cannot tell you how many pastoral leaders I know who are friends and who are fond of saying things like, well, this is just God's judgment on our country for walking away from God, whether it's respect to the events at the Capitol building in the U.S. over the past few weeks or respect to damaging weather that kills people or respect to some new law being passed in Canada. See, there's, there's a deep desire in us as human beings to search for linkages between cause and effect. And, and sometimes we actually do this unconsciously. But this is what the book of Job is going to try and help us link and delink. So let's pay attention again to what we talked about a little bit last week. 
and that is that judging a situation to be the result of sin might be an easy way for us to resolve it in our thinking, but that does not mean that it is the right conclusion. Think about stories of Jesus. Jesus comes across a man who's been born blind and his disciples immediately think in accordance with their religious worldview and cause and effect and they say, hey Jesus, question who sinned, this man or his parents? Somebody done messed up if blindness is the result. Am I right? Can I get an amen? And Jesus says, neither. In other words, don't draw conclusions about what God might be up to with respect to other people or other nations by looking at the present situation. You simply do not have all the data to make your case. Eliphaz essentially says, Job is in a bad state. Bad states are a result of God's judgment on sin. Therefore, Job must have sinned. But friends, remember, there are some things that only God has the answers to, and the rest of us are guessing. So Job spends a chapter refuting his friend on this issue in Job chapter 6. Now look with me at verse 10 where he says, listen, despite the pain, I have to remind you, I have not denied the words of the Holy One. Or chapter 6 verse 29, stop assuming my guilt, for I've done no wrong, he says. Do you think I'm lying? Don't you think I know the difference between right and wrong? So Job still maintains his innocence. And then he also, in chapter 7, rails against God. He says, you know, God, in, chapter, in verse 20, if I've sinned, what have I done to you, O watcher of all humanity? Why make me your target? Am I a burden to you? Why not just forgive my sin? Take away my guilt. For soon I'm going to lie down in the dust and die. When you look for me, I'm going to be gone. Well, this railing against God does not sit well with the friendship group. So uh, friend number two steps up to the plate for an attempt to convince Job of the errors of his views on the divine. So friend number two is Bildad the Shuhite. No jokes about his diminutive stature in the chat, please. Bildad does not pull any punches. In fact, I would say that his replies are some of the harshest and most pointy in the whole book. Look with me at Job chapter 8, verse 2. How long will you go on like this? You sound like a blustering wind, Job. Your children, verse 4, must have sinned against God, so their punishment was well-deserved. But if you pray to God, seek the favor of the Almighty, and if you're pure and live with integrity, he will rise up and restore your happy home. And though you started with little, you will end up with much. Wow. I mean, can you imagine your friend coming, sitting with you for a week after your 10 children have died, and their best conclusion about your life and the highest words of comfort that they can offer you is, well, I'm not entirely sure what happened to your kids, but they must have deserved it. I would unfriend that person immediately. <laughs> I mean, how insensitive and how unkind is that to Job? But Bildad, we can see if we trace his speeches throughout the book, he's actually more concerned about being right than he is about being kind. 
He feels like Job's questioning God is an affront to orthodoxy and needs to immediately be shut down, like now. And so his argument basically goes, listen, God's just, your children must have gotten what they deserved and you're probably gonna get the same. And his logic is rooted in God's holiness. So if God's holy, Bildad says, this can't be God's fault. So the only explanation is that somehow it's your fault, some moral failure on the part of Job. Look at chapter eight, verse 20. He says, God will not reject a person of integrity, nor will he lend a hand to the wicked. So because you're looking pretty darn rejected by God about now, Job, you must not be a person of integrity. Now, again, Bildad's really harsh, but they are applying their transactional view of God that we discussed last week, and they're just taking it to its logical extent. Nothing that Bildad said actually can't be found in chapter and verse somewhere else in the Old Testament. In fact, Bildad is worried that Job is the heretic and is saying untrue things about God by asking questions. But I want us again to make this personal, not just think, oh, that Bildad guy, I would never do anything like that. Friends, we need to think about how you and I speak to people that we think need some correction in some way. And I wanna remind us that most often, it's not what you say, but how you say it that people will remember. In Luke chapter four, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue and he's teaching some hard truths and the people are reflecting on Jesus' teaching ministry. And Luke 4.22 says this, everyone was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. See, Jesus, the text reminds us, came from the Father full of both grace and truth. But here's what I see happening, friends. Sometimes, in an effort to defend or stand up for capital T truth, we end up coming off and doing it without any grace, especially online. And Jericho, I want to say that some of you need to watch how you say things online. You're conducting yourself with high truth but low grace, and that is not acceptable. I want you to think about, and maybe you need to conduct a social media audit. Go back over everything you've posted this last couple of weeks, or conduct a conversational audit. Think about the conversations you've had with people in the last few days. Have they been full of truth, but lacking grace in some way? You've likely seen the meme, and I don't often use them here uh, in preaching, but this one I thought had some applicability here. Shouting the truth at someone doesn't make it any more palatable. So as a person with a commitment to truth, I have to ask you, are you communicating truth in a way that is grace-saturated? If not, why not? 
A spiritual practice for you, if this is something that you struggle with, might be that after you have something that you feel needs saying, write it out, sit with it for two hours. If you still feel strongly about it, show it to two people to get their feedback on the tone of it. Better yet, sit with it for two days and try to work out two other ways that you could say the same thing more graciously. Friend, tone matters. And that's not a musical pun, by the way. Because you might end up in your desire to defend truth, be like Bildad, where you can win the quote-unquote argument but lose the quote-unquote war based on the fact that you communicated the truth. But you did it completely devoid of grace. Remember the instruction in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. Well, after Bildad dumps that on Job, we get another rebuttal. And then finally today, we come to friend number three, Zophar. Now, Zophar is a little bit miffed with Job, and he lets him have it right off the hop. So look with me at Job chapter 11. I'm going to read a slightly longer section here. Zophar says, shouldn't someone answer this torrent of words? Is a person proved innocent just by a lot of talking? Should I remain silent while you babble on? When you mock God, shouldn't someone make you ashamed? You claim my beliefs are pure, I'm clean in the sight of God. If only God would speak, if only he would tell you what he thinks, if only he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for true wisdom is not a simple matter. Listen, God is doubtlessly punishing you far less than you deserve. Can you solve the mysteries of God? Can you discover everything about the Almighty? Such knowledge is higher than the heavens. And who are you? It's deeper than the underworld. What do you know? It's broader than the earth, wider than the sea. If God puts a person in prison or calls a court to order, who can stop him? He knows those who are false. He takes note of all their sins. An empty-headed person wouldn't become wise any more than a wild donkey can bear a human child. Verse 13, if only God would prepare your heart Lift up your hands to him in prayer. Get rid of your sins. Leave all your iniquity behind you. Then your face will brighten with innocence. You'll be strong, free of fear. You'll forget your misery. It'll be like water flowing away. Your life will be brighter than the noonday. Even darkness will be as bright as the morning. Job, having hope, will give you courage. You'll be protected. You'll rest in safety. You'll lie down unafraid. Many will look to you for help, but the wicked will be blinded. They will have no escape. Their only hope is death. Whew, this having your friends around to comfort you thing is going real well for Job, don't you think? <laughs> I mean, I read, I and mean, I read Zophar's response because it encapsulates a lot of the thinking so far from Job's friends. And it actually also incorporates a lot of the thinking of other religious traditions about the problem of evil and suffering in our world. Because Zophar basically introduces a law of divine retaliation. You owe, therefore you must pay. 
Zophar says, hey, you've probably done something that's put your relational account with the divine into a negative balance. And so God's gonna extract the pound of flesh from you in order to get you to feel really bad about your sins, especially if you keep hiding your sin from God. I mean, wow, then God is really coming for you, Job. And here, friends, we have to pause and just rejoice about the benefit of living under the law of love and the law of the Spirit and the life in Christ Jesus that has set us free from the law of sin and death. Because the language of a balance owing in our relationship with God is actually not unhelpful language. See, if you and I pause and we think about it for a moment, if we're honest with ourselves, we know in our heart of hearts and in our heads that all of us have done something that isn't right. We've all allowed evil to take root in our hearts in little and in big ways. And we've participated both passively and actively in this. And the Bible gives a name or a term to that. It calls it sin. Sin is living out of alignment with God's perfection and intention. And so Job's friend Zophar is on this count technically correct. You and I and every human being that's ever lived, quote unquote, owe a debt relationally that we cannot make right in and of ourselves. Oh, sure, some people try hard to be, quote-unquote, good people, but you will never, friend, be able to right all of the wrongs and to move the balance from negative into the positive simply by hoping against hope that on the day of your death, whenever that might be, that you have 50% plus one good deeds over bad deeds. That is simply not the way the world works. The way that the world works is that, yes, all of us, have in fact sinned. We all owe something. But the wonderful news of the gospel is that someone stepped in to pay that outstanding amount. Someone stepped in to rewrite the balance sheet of your life and mine, and that someone is Jesus. See, friends, the story of the gospel is that Jesus paid your debt. He canceled it by absorbing it on the cross. And the, the scripture says that when you believe this in your heart, when you confess it with your mouth, when you begin to live a life of following Jesus, you get to experience something that Zophar, Bildad, and Eliphaz could never have imagined. And it's called grace. See, friends, if you have never taken this step, or if as you audit this last week, even maybe the past few hours, you recognize your need to re-embrace grace and mercy for something that you have done wrong, it's a powerful truth. Think of what your reaction would be in real life if you had amassed a huge financial debt and someone came along and paid it all off. You would be over the moon with gratitude. And that, friends, is really an appropriate response to what God has done in Christ. 
And that's really what worship is. It's our response to a loving and gracious God who not only forgives that first time when we say yes and the balance transfer is accomplished and we become part of God's family, but also in every ongoing moment where you and I need grace. From unkind words spoken to attitudes of racial or economic superiority that we harbor in our hearts. For everything you and I have ever done and ever will do wrong, when we approach the throne of grace confidently, we can find help in our time of need. And so if you've never done that, I want you to respond in the chat to the invitation to pray with someone and indicate that you want to follow Jesus. If you're watching on YouTube, I want you to email me and let me know that that's a decision that you've made and the step that you want to take. And then I want you to invite you to sit with that sense of gratitude for God's grace.